Hello, Jenny Roper, editor of Work Magazine here, popping up very quickly before this episode of What If, just to let you know that if you're enjoying this podcast, chances are you'll love Sister Title Management Today's podcast too. The Leadership Lessons podcast delves into the world of leadership and management, bringing insights, trends and advice to the ears of busy senior leaders. Previous interviewees include author Amy Gallo, British Heart Foundation CEO Charmaine Griffiths and kidnap negotiator Scott Walker. Get it wherever you usually get your podcasts. Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to Series 4 of What If? a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. I'm Katie Jacobs from the CIPD, and in this episode, I'm making myself feel slightly better about the contents of my bank account by asking, what if no one was rich? The COVID-19 pandemic has changed so much, from how we work to how we think about health risk. But one unwelcome trend that you might not have seen coming is the impact it's had on billionaire-scale wealth and global inequality. According to Oxfam, the pandemic led to the greatest ever surge in billionaire wealth globally. While the income of 98% of us suffered, the wealth of the world's 10 richest men doubled. And since the pandemic began, a new billionaire has been created every 26 hours, thanks in part, Oxfam claims, to the very richest profiting from vaccines at the expense of the poorest, or by exploiting record rises in energy and food prices. It's the kind of wealth that's hard for most of us to imagine. Not that we don't enjoy trying, because there's something about being fabulously, filthily rich that fascinates and intrigues, inspiring its own genre of culture, from the high-end property porn of reality show Selling Sunset to the so-nasty-we-can't-look-away antics of the Roy dynasty on prestige drama Succession. And... While it's often purported that people are getting less materialistic, driven in part by anxiety over the state of the planet, getting rich quick, these days often via influencer culture, is still an aspiration for many in the younger generation. But while we might like to gawp at excess and aspire to being better off ourselves, wealth is also highly contentious, the cause of protest and dissent in economies across the world. At a time, in the UK at least, when many people are reduced to using food banks, is the level of wealth possessed by a minority obscene, even immoral? There have been attempts to redress the balance, tinkering with the taxation system, encouraging greater levels of philanthropy, and increasing transparency around pay through mechanisms like CEO pay ratio reporting, to name a few. But in a world where the top 1% has captured nearly 20 times more global wealth than the bottom 50% of humanity, many argue such methods simply aren't radical enough. So, given the sheer scale of inequality globally and at home in the UK, is it time to take some big audacious steps towards wealth redistribution? Or would doing so put the brakes on the ambition and vision that can lead to some people, yes, earning astronomical sums, but also creating jobs and opportunities for others through their success. And what about intergenerational money and the fact wealth simply begets more wealth for the luckiest individuals and families? Put simply, in a world when no one was rich, would we all be better off? To discuss this thorny issue, 
I called on two people with rich expertise in all things wealth. David Bain is a finance journalist, entrepreneur and publisher of the magazine Family Capital, which is dedicated to the global family enterprise sector. And Julia Davis is an angel investor in organisations addressing the climate crisis and a member of Patriotic Millionaires, a membership organisation of millionaires who campaign for the end of extreme wealth. I kicked off by asking David what, in his opinion, it means to be rich. I think being rich is never having to worry about money ever again in your life. So you can go forward knowing that you won't have to go seeking income or capital from any other source. That doesn't mean that you won't do that, but it means that you know that you can pretty much live for the rest of your life without worrying about money or money issues. I suppose that's what I would consider rich. And I think a high net worth individual used to be around in a net wealth, that's after all their debt and taking out their primary property, the value of that, it tended to be around a million pounds or a million dollars. I suspect because of inflationary pressures over the last year or so, that that's been pushed up to maybe around two million sterling. And then you are considered a high net worth individual. Beyond that, you have a what they call an ultra high net worth individual. Back in the day, that was around 30 million and certainly, I mean, if you've got that sort of wealth, you're never going to have to worry about money ever again in your life. And then you get beyond that portrayed as the billionaire wealth, which is just the super rich. And then, of course, there's the difference between income and wealth. Income simply isn't an issue for the richest among us, as David goes on to explain. I actually think income becomes less relevant and the very rich probably get less income, but a lot more dividends from owning capital. You know, income becomes less important the further you go up the food chain of wealth. So capital, which is owning things like, you know, property, companies, other assets, fine art, expensive cars, which, you know, you can sell for more. I mean, if you're earning £500,000 a year income through being in a partner in a, a law firm or an accountancy firm or something like that, then you're earning a lot of money. But the further you go up the food chain, capital will play a bigger role and getting dividends from that or rent from that capital becomes more important than income. The higher up the food chain of wealth you go, the more fascinated many of us become by the simultaneously shiny yet murky world of billionaires. It might make us a bit uncomfortable, but we can't look away. Why is it, I asked David, that wealth is so fetishised and has this always been the case? It's from day one of human existence. There's an element of just being fascinated by it, of desire to get wealthier, aspirational desire. Having worked in the publishing industry, you, you see a lot of that in terms of magazines which sell an aspiration. I suppose the other side is that there's a slightly voyeuristic aspect of looking at extreme wealth. You know, we want to know what their lives are like. Are they different from you and me? Do they have the same worries or do they have completely different concerns? I suppose in some ways we quite like to see them as potentially frivolous. You know, the old sort of concept of wealth doesn't bring you happiness. And you see that in programs like Succession, where there are lots of issues of jealousies and rivalries, just as you get in any family, probably, I suppose, amplified to that greater extent because people are fighting over much greater levels of assets and money. Julia Davis is rich a millionaire, in fact. She made her fortune after selling her stake in the backpack and travel bag company Osprey, 
But rather than sit back and enjoy the fruits of her labour, her deep concerns about the climate crisis led to her founding the environmental fund We Have the Power and investing in start-up organisations committing to fighting climate change. She is also a member of the group Patriotic Millionaires, which campaigns to end extreme wealth. Let's hear a bit more about her philosophy. So since the time of selling out of Osprey, I've been basically working out how I can use my skills and the wealth that I have and the, the luxury of being able to dedicate my time to what I really, really am passionate about in the best possible way. So Patriotic Millionaires UK, we're a group of people who we come into the category of people with su- sufficient wealth that we really think that we should be contributing more to the UK economy on the basis of our wealth. So to become a member of the group, you have to have assets of more than $5 million or income of over a $1 million a year. We come together as a group because we believe that wealth inequality across the world, but in particular in the UK, has got to a level of extremism. We don't think that it is wrong that people benefit from taking risks as entrepreneurs, working hard in their careers. We don't believe that everybody should be paid the same. We do believe that, you know, you should be able to benefit from, you know, accumulating a certain amount of wealth for yourself and your family. But in our view, and the evidence suggests that wealth has been concentrating into the hands of fewer and fewer people. And this has been snowballing over recent decades to the point at which it really is incredibly extreme now. So you have vast amounts of wealth concentrated into the hands of fewer and fewer people, which then gives those people a level of power and leverage which threatens our our whole way of life. It threatens our democracies. And it means that an awful lot of the wealth of our country is not going into creating public wealth, going into supporting and investing the public life that we all rely on. One of the questions we're always asked is, you know, if you want to pay more tax, why don't you just do it? Well, a small number of people just voluntarily paying more money to the government. One, that's not tax. That's philanthropy, because tax is something that you have to pay. So you don't get to decide whether you pay your tax or not. Nurses, teachers, doctors, the people cleaning our streets, they don't get to decide whether they pay that tax or not. So we are not advocating for people to voluntarily pay some money to the government because they can afford to do so. We are advocating for tax so that people with wealth have to pay tax on some of their wealth. While most of us could only dream of having the kind of wealth Julia has accumulated, even if she does want to give it away for the greater good there's still a big difference between being a millionaire and being a billionaire. So, how much money does Julia think is too much money for one individual? There's lots of research that's been done into poverty. When's too little? Too little. Nobody's really come up with a figure when someone's got too much. But I definitely feel that there are people that have too much because they now have so much sway. They have more power than our governments. It's not for me to put a figure on it, but I definitely think, you know, when she start getting into billions and now we've got, you know, multi, multi billions now, these people have got the ear of our government. We know why. Why should anyone need that amount of money? And in her opinion, the fetishization of wealth is perhaps worse now than it has ever been, putting society at risk. Society now idolises wealth and idolises what I consider extreme overconsumption in a way that we didn't. I was brought up in the 70s and two principles that my mum would drum home to us was you share nicely and you don't show off. You know, these are basic working class principles. Whereas now I think in society is 
you do show off. Um, and actually, it's almost considered okay to be really quite selfish because let's be clear about this. If you have considerable levels of wealth and you're not willing to put your hand in your pocket to help support British public services, then that's selfish. I'll, I'll say it. I won't be popular for saying it, but it is. As you can tell, Julia believes wealth is a moral issue. And it's certainly a theme that's echoed in protest movements around the world, and one that rings true at a time where most working people are facing a challenging, even ruinous, cost-of-living crisis. Here's David on the friction and discord surrounding money matters, and whether it's fair. Wealth is always going to be contentious, and if, if wealth becomes too excessive and there seems to be an unfairness of it all, then you're going to get protest movements. I remember back in the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, you had the Stop the Wall Street camps in front of Wall Street, and I think there was one in near St. Paul's, as I vaguely remember. And I suppose the financial crisis then brought to the fore the the excesses of salaries of bankers and and the financial sector in general, that's perfectly legitimate. And, and I suppose also you can feel anger towards what is, I suppose, the undeserved rich, who are people who probably haven't worked particularly hard, but they are exceptionally wealthy, whether that be sort of inherited wealth or just got lucky, or they go up, they go up the swiftly pole of a corporate structure and they get to the top of that corporate structure. They're, they're paid huge amounts of money. But when they fail, they may lose their job, but they get massive payoffs. And they tend to sort of land in another cushy number, you know, a year or two later, and they're still paid a tremendous amount of money. I mean, this all comes down to what I think is very important with wealth. You know, I'm not against wealth. I think wealth is exceptionally important for the world economy. And as soon as you try to suppress it, you end up getting a a Soviet style system and it doesn't do society any good. But I think in the West, we still have ways of assimilating that wealth and ensuring that there are safety nets and everything else. I mean, after all, you know, if you create a business, okay, there's lots of ways you're contributing to society because you employ people. So you're paying their salaries, you're paying a tax bill, you're paying both income tax, you're paying corporation tax. And if you sell your business, you're going to pay capital gains tax. So society is benefiting from your entrepreneurship. And that's important. And you need wealth creation for the benefit of society. As David says, wealth creation and accumulation should, in theory anyway, contribute to the smooth running of wider society through taxation. But given the UK is the second most unequal country in the G7, Julia believes our current taxation system doesn't go nearly far enough in terms of wealth distribution and that the richest need to be hit much harder to create any kind of parity. At the moment, the greatest burden of paying taxation is falling on those who are paying it out of their disposable income. If we introduce the kind of increases in wealth taxation that we are talking about, it will not affect the lifestyles of people with wealth one jot. So as an example, so far we haven't introduced a tax on wealth First of all, to explain why it's really important that we do that is because wealth is consolidating into the hands of fewer and fewer people. It's concentrating. So if we don't basically 
be willing to make this change and impose a tax on that, it's just going to continue to snowball. You know, it's going to continue to be sucked upwards, which is what's been happening. So we are proposing a really moderate um, tax on wealth to start off with. So we've suggested one or two percent on wealth above 10 million. Hands off anything below 10 million. And let's be really clear, if you've got 10 million in wealth, you're doing very nicely. Just one example, which is just it's mind boggling that we don't just sort this out. So people pay a lower rate of tax on capital gains that they make. Capital gain is basically just money that you make or income that you make on your wealth. If I bought shares a few years ago and now I sell them now and they've gone up in value by £200,000 in the meantime, you know, you get an annual allowance kind of thing. I'll have made a capital gain um, and I pay tax on that on that capital gain, but at a much lower rate than a nurse is paying, you know, when she is slogging her guts out on all of those shifts, working really, really hard. And because income tax is higher than capital gains. And please explain how that's justified to me, because people only make capital gains if they have wealth. David agrees that in the UK, at least, redistributing wealth isn't as effective as it could be and that more needs to be done to stop money being automatically sucked into London. Governments are very good at spending our money. It's not their money after all, it's our money, it's our taxes, which are giving them the revenues which they can go and spend with. And sometimes I think they could be better at doing that. It is worrying to me because I always felt that Britain was a sort of relatively, I mean, it's it's got its issues, but it was a relatively fair society and everything like that. But I think there isn't enough wealth creation going on in this country right now. And I think that's going to cause issues. We try all these things of redistributing income or making um, other parts of Britain wealthier, and it never seems to work. A common argument against increasing taxes on the most wealthy is that doing so will simply cause them to leave the country. But studies have debunked this, showing that for most wealthy citizens, tax levels are a relatively minor factor in making a decision to relocate, compared to things like family and social ties and overall economic stability. Here's Julia with more on that. So in 2017, there was a tweak to non-DOM status. And what it meant was that long-term residents of the UK could no longer rely on non-DOM status. And that meant that if those long-term residents of the UK chose to stay in the UK, they would face a significant tax bill that they hadn't been paying previously. So obviously, there there were those that were saying these people are just going to be a mass exit of these wealthy people. And actually, that didn't happen. Very few people left, and of those very few people left, they weren't the people who pay significant tax in the UK anyway. People want to live here um, in comparison to other places in the world. Um, And so this suggestion that if we start asking the wealthiest to just put their hand in the pocket and contribute a little bit more, they're going to go out of the UK. I think you'll find that the people that talk about that the loudest are the people that are already pretty cleverly making sure that they're not contributing very much to tax in the UK under our current tax system. People haven't gone to those lengths. I don't see them leaving the UK. Even if they could, there are things that you can't move out of the UK. You know, you can't move those London mansions out of the UK. There are assets that are here that that can't be moved. Wealth in the UK is far more unequally distributed than income. In 2020, the ONS calculated that the richest 10% of households hold 43% of all wealth. One consequence of this is that inherited wealth is becoming an increasingly important factor in determining opportunities and lifetime resources for today's young people. 
With research from the London School of Economics finding that some English dynasties are hiding at least 35% of their inherited wealth, can passing money down ever be fair? Here's Julia. Most people don't really get a significant inheritance from their parents. If they do, it's, it's really relatively minor and at best they might get a share of the family home. There are a small number of people who get a huge inheritance, absolutely huge, and get huge gifts through their lifetime, whereas a tiny amount of that is actually taxed. One, because there are lots of ways of avoiding that. Following the taxation rules that we have now, there are lots of ways to structure your wealth so that not that much of it is taxed when it's passed on to your children or whoever you choose to leave your money to. And then that puts those people in a significant advantage compared to everyone else. And that keeps the wealth in the hands of relatively few people. And there's a lot that could be done to look into that and adjusted it. You know, nobody's talking about creating an absolutely level playing field. What we're talking about is creating a slightly less extreme playing field. So we have some people who are absolutely struggling against the tide. We have some people who are massively, massive, massive level of advantage. And the system that we have at the moment keeps that advantage with them and their family. As an expert on family businesses, David feels that entrepreneurial wealth should be treated differently to historic or aristocratic wealth, given the contribution those running businesses make to the economy. What matters here, he argues, is the concept of stewardship. The royal family didn't pay any inheritance tax whatsoever. And actually, you find that a lot of British aristocracy don't pay much inheritance tax because of the seven-year rule on transferring those assets to your next generation, which I think is inherently unfair. But people don't talk too much about that. And that's not even an offshore scheme. That's actually onshore. I mean, I travel throughout the UK, and it astounds me how much aristocratic welfare is still controlling most of the land of this country. I kind of feel that's unfair. I really do. I don't feel that wealth, which is being created through great entrepreneurial endeavors, is unfair. Now, if there's concept of a stewardship that it's passed on to the next generation and it's not taxed to such an extent that it means that they cannot no longer run the business, I think it's important. You know, if it's a business which employs people, okay, you know, creating a product or a service which people want then I don't think there should be a great deal of inheritance tax on that, passing that business down. I do think inheritance tax should be a lot more on property and real estate. I really do believe that. And I don't believe in not having any inheritance tax. And what of the pay of executives, those running some of the largest public companies in the world? According to analysis by the High Pay Centre, Between 2021 and 2022, median FTSE 100 CEO pay increased from £3.38 million to £3.91 million during a time when many households were struggling. Here's David's thoughts on whether these levels of top team pay are acceptable. There was a sort of management class of individuals who go up the Sydney pole of a corporate business. I mean, they probably wouldn't agree with this, but they're they're not entrepreneurs. They're just sort of professional bureaucrats, effectively. And I think these people are needed. And I suppose the question is, do they need to be paid 200 times more than the average pay of their staff? It is a difficult one. I think people will use the argument, well, look, if, if we don't pay them, you know, they, they will leave. And, and capitalism at that level is very global. They can go and work in, in other countries and the U.S. pays a lot for its CEOs and they can go and work there if they're good enough. Maybe not so much a concept of salary or how much they earn. 
It's more that they need to be held accountable when their businesses don't do so well. They need to be forced to resign and maybe their pensions need to be cut. And here's Julia. I think that paying at those levels gets you the kind of people who are just focused on their pay, their share price, short-termism, what they're going to get out of it in the short term. They're not focused on the long-term success of that company and they're certainly not focused on the long-term success of that business in the context of, of the UK. So just looking at the FTSE 350, 570 executives were paid between them £1.33 billion. So that's £1.33 billion paid to just 570 people. It's difficult to kind of work out how bad that is. So I decided to do a little bit of work and I created my own spreadsheet. And I decided, well, these people are running companies. Yes, that's hard. It's difficult. Yes, you've got to reward people well for, for running that. But what else is difficult to run? What else is a hard job to lead? Head teachers. I worked out that that's 1.33 billion that was being paid to just 570 people. That could pay for 14,000 head teachers. So for me, that put it into perspective. Yes, we need good people running these companies, but we need good people running our schools as well. It's hard to argue with that. So, to return to our central question in this episode, what if no one was rich? Would we all be better off? Or would it make society poorer as a result? Let's hear from David first. Well, I think it's impossible to be in that situation. But if if everyone was equal, then I think you'd have a grey, boring society. I just don't think it would work. And it would be grim. You need wealth creation and you need people to, to aspire to wealth creation to create a dynamic society. I really believe that. And here's Julia to take us home. I think that society would be a better place if we didn't have extreme levels of wealth inequality. I don't think that the world would be a better place if everybody had exactly the same and that people couldn't benefit from working harder or saving or looking after their families. We we know that that doesn't work. Our suggestions are a very, very long way from communism. There is a lot of options between extreme wealth inequality and communism and we need to rebalance that i think the world would be a much better place if we valued and the people that are providing our key public services much better and the world would be a much better place if those with wealth were willing to invest more by taxation in our public services and so in our public wealth you have been listening to the what if podcast brought to you by the cipd's work magazine To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website. Hi there, Katie Jacobs here, co-host of What If. If you're enjoying our podcast, I'd love to let you know about another one I think might be up your street. In the Responsible Business Leading the Way podcast... I and my co-host, Professor Veronica Hope-Haley from the University of Bristol Business School, explore the role of business in society and what responsible leadership looks like in a world that continues to lurch from crisis to crisis. To do so, we're joined by inspirational and insightful leaders from organisations including Microsoft, Tate & Lyle and the Bank of England. This limited series is produced by the University of Bristol Business School, working with the CIPD. To listen... Just search Responsible Business Leading the Way wherever you get your podcasts.